This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. We have lost the social spaces where people do just meet one another, just hang out, and then suddenly say, hey, would you like to go for coffee later? Or do you want to hook up? Or well, I'll see you on campus later. So we're losing those spaces, which means we're losing the skills of how we meet people in those spaces. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we are delighted to welcome to the show... Professor Kate Ott. She is the Jerry L. and Mary Joy Stead Professor of Christian Social Ethics and Director of the Stead Center on Ethics and Values at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. She's the author of Christian Ethics for a Digital Society, and today we're talking about her recent book, Sex, Tech, and Faith, Ethics for a Digital Age. Professor Kate Ott, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to begin my conversation with you by saying that this was not the book that I expected. If I'm going to pick up a book on Christian sexual ethics, particularly one that deals with technology and sexual ethics, I think I had expected a heavier hand from the author. And instead, what I encountered here was a deft and careful and very supportive and affirming approach to these questions. So I think, first of all, I just want to begin with a word of thanks and say, I, I was astonished at how, at how this book left me feeling. And I'm just grateful for that as a reader. I know that my listeners who pick this book up will be grateful for that as well. But then I want to bring into this, you You start out the book early saying that Christian thought generally has three starting points for creating a sexual ethic, behaviors, relationships, and values. And I felt like that's a good place for my listeners to begin to dig in to your analysis here. So help to walk us through those three focal points of developing Christian sexual ethics. Let me first say extreme appreciation for your reflection on the tone of the text. My hope in any text that I write is to bring my teaching self 
to that text. And I also in a classroom would not dictate what someone's sexual ethics should be. And so my hope is that in the reader to, to be an informed student and think for themselves about sexual ethics and digital literacy. And I think that also explains why I set up the very mini sexual ethics 101 starting point that many of us believe in Christian contexts that sexual ethics has to start with behaviors and can only start with behaviors. I think that's really all we hear if we hear anything. So at least that's one step. It's not silence. But even if we don't hear those explicit messages, we know from the context and the comments that are made around us in our Christian communities that behavior is what dictates our versions of sexual ethics, which is usually a list of things that either cause sin or don't. And I want my reader to think much more robustly about their sexuality, one, that it's not only behaviors, but also about how we think through sexual ethics. That list of behaviors has a whole host of cultural and theological choices that have been made mostly by male leaders in our churches. And so by expanding that to begin with, we already perhaps have a different starting point or at least some openings to thinking about sexual ethics differently. Many of our liberal Christian churches, I believe, operate out of a relationship-based sexual ethic. And so while they've moved away from this list of behaviors that's bad, they have instead adopted a reformed theology. Well, it's okay to have some other relationships along the way. We're not going to judge all those. You know, just make sure that what you're focused on is getting into a relationship. And what we know about a lot of Christians is that they don't live their lives where they shouldn't live their lives, only trying to focus on a single type of relationship. We're focused on, I'm not in that one. I got to get in that one. I just broke up from that one. I got to find a new one. The, the stress of that, again, does not focus on the robustness of our sexuality, who we are, how we have a relationship with God. And so I prefer, and I walk the reader through a value-based sexual ethic, which instead says, if we think of our Christian theology and ethics, what are the values that stand out for us? What are the values that myself and my community wants to put forward and wants to flourish for me as an individual, for us as a community, and in the relationships we create? And so if I start with those values, it can be as simple as the love commandment, or it could be a list like respect, consent, honesty. If I'm looking for those for myself in my relationships, then it doesn't so much matter what behavior we focus on or what relationship we're in, but we're constantly living out those values. So that's my sexual ethics 101. And I hope it bridges the reader into thinking about a lot more complex applied questions related to digital technology. Let me take a quick moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Kate Ott. She is the Jerry L. and Mary Joy Stead Professor of Christian Social Ethics and Director of the Stead Center on Ethics and Values at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. Today we're talking about her recent book, Sex, Tech, and Faith, Ethics for a Digital Age. 
So if I'm hearing you correctly in that sort of sexual ethics 101 that you just gave us and that you're referring to at the beginning of your book, Sex, Tech, and Faith, if we think about behaviors, those are oftentimes in Christian contexts characterized as the thou shalt nots, right? And if we're talking about relationships, you mentioned that we have a patriarchal default towards a kind of heteronormative opposite sex relationship that culminates in marriage. And you're pushing us instead towards a kind of values-based, which is examining and inviting the reader to examine what they most care for and cherish in themselves and in their relationships to others, what they're looking for that makes them feel fulfilled and valued. Now, these are all my words, not yours, in summing this up. But as I'm saying this back to you, does this sound right, or would you tweak something here and there or say something in a different way? It sounds absolutely right. I would also add to it that one of the reasons I think a value-based sexual ethic is so important for us in Christian communities, but also beyond that, is that it is not dependent, as you described, on one's gender identity or sexual orientation, which we're constantly learning new things about. And honestly, we all live on a spectrum related to those things. So this creates a way for us to move forward ethically without having a dependence on our very outdated understandings of gender identity and orientation, but also the way those outdated understandings cause harm to people in their lives and their relationships. Well, now here's where I want to dig in, because if we talk about a values-based sexual ethic, we are aware that values are always in conflict with other values. And when we think about either individually-based values within a community or one community's values over against another community's, there, as you've just pointed out, there are different emphases, there, there are different ways of thinking about these competing goods. And so one of the things that Christians are incredibly good at is taking their own particular local set of values and universalizing them and saying, and all other values are bankrupt and therefore should be abandoned. Even within the Christian churches amongst themselves, there's not a shared set of values around a lot of these questions. And so how do we begin to navigate that very thorny history of, for want of a better term, kind of chauvinism or bigotry about one's local values? Well, in in that regard, I'm actually concerned that we're misusing the term values as we think about ethics. So suggesting that there are only two gender identities, masculine and feminine, is not a value. That's a scientific fact. It's things that we can research. It's experiential understandings of individuals. And so we know that there's a spectrum of gender identity. We know that much of how we understand gender identity is historically constructed. If only girls wear dresses, you go somewhere else in the world that has a different racial background, ethnicity, religious culture, and men wear things that look very much like dresses, but we don't call them dresses because of our cultural understanding. So I do think there's a difference between some of what I'm talking about in terms of scientific fact and then understanding biology versus what we might say is a value. People value certain ways of reading those facts. But when I'm talking about values, ethical ways of being with one another and living out those practices. So again, some examples I gave, honesty, consent, mutuality, justice. Now, how people combine their sources of authority when it comes to religion or science, will affect 
whether they choose to live in certain relationships. But what I'm really asking the reader in this book to do is to say, I will, one, be educated in terms of sexual literacy. So I will get the sexuality education that our faith communities, our schools, our churches do not provide. And I will be inquisitive about digital literacy as well. So that's the other thing as we think about values and where people stand on on certain types of controversial issues. You know, digital technology really plays with our understanding of even what it means to be in a human interaction with someone else. Is their avatar the gender and orientation that I'm interacting with? Or is it the user behind that avatar? And am I then multiply sexualized in that sense of orientation and gender if I can both appear to you on a screen as a, I'm a cisgender white woman, but I could appear to you on a screen as a person, a male person of color who identifies as queer. And so which one is my true identity? Do we, should we even ask the question that way? Should the question instead be, how would I interact with that individual in a way that reflects my values? Would I always be honest with that person? Would I care for that person? Would I treat them in a way that's non-abusive? If so, the other questions don't matter to me as much. I'm really concerned about how we're acting and how it affects us morally. And as we move into our conversation, we are going to dig into these digital implications that you've just gestured toward. But on the way to that, I I want to stay with this for just a moment because you've just named these wonderful values of sort of egalitarianism and consent and honoring the other. But you also say very plainly in your book, Sex, Tech, and Faith, that we are very good in the Christian communities at catechizing people into a different set of values, ones that do not recognize things like consent, do not recognize things like egalitarianism, but instead say, no, the norm, the sort of thing that we are valuing and working towards is a disjuncture or not listening to our partners or being one in command. And so on our way to our first break, talk to us about that friction, how You are speaking in a context of Christian sexual ethics, yet we are catechizing people oftentimes demonstrably into a very different set of sexual ethics. Well, Christianity has a long tradition of valorizing self-sacrifice when it comes to gendered understandings of sexuality. So, So women are meant to completely give of themselves, to be dominated, to be their their husband to be the head of them. And we know that those theologies directly contribute to actions of sexual abuse and violence, uh, often justified not only by partners, but, but by the community members who feel that that woman is not doing her Christian duty. I expose those theologies in a way that is in conversation with so many other feminist and womanist theologians who have done that over time. I also, in addition to that, one of the primary pieces of this text that I think for me was difficult to balance is also the Christian tradition's difficulty with bodies. And I'm going to say difficulty here, right? Because we have the incarnation, we have this God who becomes human, and then we have all these theologies later that struggle with this notion of body and flesh, and it's supposed to be less than, and we're supposed to control it. And we also are talking about a digital context where many people would say, that's not real, it's not embodied. But in fact, our interactions with digital technology require a deep connection with our bodies. And so I think from those two particular pieces of theology, 
I try to wrestle with throughout the text and invite the reader to also ask themselves, what have they learned about it? In addition to those gendered theologies, right? Even in our teenage years, the way in which I think many heterosexual patriarchal Christian theologies teach, boys just need to resist all these desires. And if they can't, find a good outlet for it. But it's it's the young female's job in purity culture to, you know, to resist that and be the person who's not desired, but you're still, of course, supposed to be desirous because you got to get married at some point. So it's just a mess of confusion. I'm in awe of how our teenagers figure out how to navigate that in our Christian communities, but also ones that we need to undo if we want a theology that's going to support a healthy and whole sexuality. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Kate Ott. She is the Jerry L. and Mary Joy Stead Professor of Christian Social Ethics and Director of the Stead Center on Ethics and Values at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. Today we're talking about her recent book, Sex, Tech, and Faith, Ethics for a Digital Age. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today we're speaking with Kate Ott. She's the Jerry L. and Mary Joy Stead Professor of Christian Social Ethics and Director of the Stead Center on Ethics and Values at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. We're talking about her recent book, Sex, Tech, and Faith, Ethics for a Digital Age. Well, let's dig into the different topics that you are dealing with in your book, Sex, Tech, and Faith. You are talking about an interesting array of very contemporary issues that face both adults and children in our increasingly digital world. Pornography, the kind of hookup culture that uses apps like Tinder, but also dating apps, the kind of cyber violence, cyber stalking, cyber bullying, revenge porn. And then from there, you turn also to ways in which we move beyond our body and our embodiment with, I'm going to say, parasocial relationships that we form with fake humanity, <laughs> however you want to define that term, whether it's robots or the Alexa that sits on our countertop and we talk to and ask questions of. And so I'm wondering what it was between you and your editors that made you land on this sort of array of topics. Why these topics in particular, and perhaps also why in this order? When I first had the idea for this manuscript, it originally came from some events where I was going to faith communities, talking with youth groups and parents, and a number of the youth leaders said to me, how would you talk about online pornography use? Could you 
tell the parents that this is something that we really need to talk about? And could you find a way to talk about it with the youth that is inviting of questions, but also doesn't like get me in trouble as the youth minister? <laughs> if any parents hear about this or the students say something outside the church, I feel as though youth ministers in faith communities turn their pulse on what's happening in Christian communities for the next four decades. And when I started to get those questions, I, and I had some youth ministers who were at churches with, that would call me up and say, I'm fielding a lot of questions on this. My youth group needs you to come and talk about this. And so after having a couple of those experiences, I thought, wow, one, I need to be more educated on this. And two, they're not the only people because there's all kinds of stories out there about pornography addiction. And in my view, as a sexuality educator as well, a lot of our Christian responses to that were not effective responses to what we might term some form of addiction. I do deal with that in the book. It's very rare that someone has a pornography addiction. There are compulsive behaviors related to it. There's also a lot of sociocultural issues. So that kicked me off in thinking and writing about this text. So it makes sense to me that was the first chapter. And self-made pornography of sexing is something many people participate in, lots of people in the pews. And so for me, that was a, I felt a good entry point to the topic and the questions that would be raised and really a line that is both blurred but helpful in thinking about embodiment and digital use and visualization. So from there, I actually, I'll admit that the online dating chapter was not one I really wanted to write. I thought, man, online dating apps or hookups, they've been around for so long. Do we like really need to say something about this? Other than communities are for them if it's only for marriage and some are for them as long as it's a consensual relationship and in between, we don't care. And then I did the research on online apps and thought, wow, there's a lot going on here that probably the people using these apps ask questions about like, why do I have to post that information? Why do I spend so much time on my profile? <laughs> what does that say about me and how I digitally represent myself? But also more people meet online now than they do through friends or through community. And I think that cultural shift is something we should be aware of and think more deeply about. Well, if I may, you actually talk about this, that you're observing and the researchers that you note are observing that many populations are, in fact, losing the capacity or the confidence for face-to-face -face interactions and that they prefer, in many ways, these virtual online, whether we're talking about romantic or non-romantic, that it's better to text somebody than to call them on the phone. It's better to call them on the phone than see them face-to-face. -face. It's those kinds of things. Thing. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about that before we, we move on. So there's a positive and a negative to that at the very least. So I will say in terms of thinking about dating and definitely for folks who are queer identified or female identified, oftentimes meeting someone through an app and having a set of information about them ahead of time is something that folks want. And they want some confidence in having a recall to that information or to be able to choose where they interact with that person. So that is a positive aspect of it. The negative side of it, of course, is that we want to control the messiness of how relationships get created. And that's impossible. 
even if it's online. It also means that we have lost the social spaces where people do just meet one another, just hang out, and then suddenly say, hey, would you like to go for coffee later? Or do you want to hook up? Or I'll see you on campus later. So we're losing those spaces, which means we're losing the skills of how we meet people in those spaces. So I think there's an aspect that's safety. And then there's this aspect of a whole type of communication that we now lack as a skill. You know, for better or worse, (laughs) where's your family in that? Where are your friends? It's usually a couple of steps into that process that our communities come into it and meet these people and vet them. And so, no, do I always want my family in my business telling me who I should be with or who I shouldn't be with? Maybe not. But they have my best interest in mind. And sometimes they have some good advice. And so I'm not sure we want to completely lose that community aspect throughout my day. Well, and this opens up then that next chapter where you're talking about some of the downsides of this new frontier of digital interaction, and that is cyber stalking and harassment, revenge porn, those kinds of things. So maybe talk to us about how that fits into all of this as well. So and this could be too much information on the way books happen, but that chapter came last, even though it's the middle one. And I will admit that it came last because every one of these issues I talk about, we could also talk about the way that they are abused and the way that people experience violence through them. So I did attempt in the other chapters on the various uses of other forms of digital technology to not focus too much on those negative aspects and provide um, the digital literacy and some of the positive interactions because I knew this chapter would deal robustly with the ways in which our Christian theology contributes to sexual violence in terms of, especially from a gender point of view, when it raises up issues of Christ's suffering and sacrifice and how in many contexts, women should themselves also offer themselves up for that kind of sacrifice and or are allowed to be used and abused. And so in that chapter, I knew that I was going to have to wrestle with the difficult theologies that continue to perpetuate sexual violence and abuse. And also, so every chapter uses stories because hearkening back to Marcella Altos Reed's work on sexual theology and the way that our sexual stories create theology for us, I was trying to use stories either from literature, from popular TV shows or series to to help the reader see the ways in which maybe this happens in the future because we don't have sex robots yet, but also happens in an everyday kind of lived experience in terms of literature that we can associate with. In the sexual violence chapter, I used direct news stories. And I did that because I did not want us to shy away from the fact that cyber stalking, cyber violence, these things happen on a regular basis. And if we aren't talking about them in our faith communities, We are leaving the people in the pews to deal with these issues on their own. And I really wanted us to to face that very explicitly and openly. So those stories are actual events that have happened to real people. And in that particular chapter, again, as I said, I don't deal with that in every chapter, but I want us to know that if we're not invested in that in our faith communities, 
how is it we talk about holistic and holy sexuality if we don't talk about the ways that it's abused and exploited by others? And give ourselves and our parishioners space to name that and the ways that they have experienced it. Experiencing sexual violence online might be different than experiencing it offline, but it is not less than. And it may disrupt your life more or equally. And it's not to be dismissed to say, oh, don't just don't worry about those text messages you're getting. Don't worry that your partner puts a tracking GPS device into your bag. They're just worried about you. No, we should be suspect. We should ask questions about that. And we should listen to victim survivors about their experiences. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Kate Ott. She is the Jerry L. and Mary Joy Stead Professor of Christian Social Ethics and Director of the Stead Center on Ethics and Values at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. Today we're talking about her recent book, Sex, Tech, and Faith, Ethics for a Digital Age. This was something that I really appreciated about your entire approach in your book, Sex, Tech, and Faith. And that is oftentimes when you're in particularly conservative Christian circles, there is a tendency to push towards a norm, a kind of perfected, idealized set of behaviors. But in every chapter, you instead were pushing us towards what I'm going to call God's extraordinary variety. You were giving us stories as ways to both identify with and empathize with those that might not fit a particular stereotype or norm. I just want to name how much I appreciated that But I also want to ask about what it is to turn that kind of normative Christian expectation into a kind of extraordinary variety of possibilities. What do we gain from that? And what did you enjoy about that as an author? I think it makes people nervous, especially Christians. (laughs) I say that because so many—we already struggle with sexuality and sexual relationships. It's one of the mystifying aspects of being human. And when I open the space for that diversity, for a variety of ways we might be in relationships or experience ourselves, that can also be difficult because we so want a perfect way to make it through, to not be hurt, to be in a good relationship, However, those very conservative norms don't help most of us. And so if we don't open it up, we're not going to have a great sex life. We're not going to have amazing sexual relationships. We're not even going to, from my perspective, have a good relationship with God that brings our whole self to that. I want God to know the messiness of who I am. And also, I want that messiness to represents God's amazing co-creational diversity in the world. So I hope that any reader who picks up this text both finds things they disagree with and also ways in which they themselves are represented or the kinds of questions they've always wanted to ask but didn't feel comfortable talking about it in a Christian context. There's also a way in which opening up that diversity for me reflects the way that ethics should be done and in particular, how digital ethics should be done. Digital ethics is rapidly changed the way we live in society. So it's not so much does 
the fact that I can get Google Maps on my phone helped me navigate a city. But I also understand the city very differently because I'm not learning the same kind of landmarks that I used to if I had to look at a map, right? It's orienting us differently to the world. That huge cultural shift also means that our ethics in response to that has to be as adaptable and, from my point of view, playful as possible in order to live up to the challenge that digitality in our lives is forcing us into. And so so I think, I hope that there is both this mirroring of an openness to diversity, to each of us as, our, as an ethicist in community, being our best selves, along with the challenge of digital technology culturally to us and how we are in the world. So let me try something on here because I want to explore this from a theological and historical setting. So in the history of the Christian church, we have iconoclasts and iconoduels, those who are very invested in the kind of creation of images and those who want to smash and destroy all the images because God should remain invisible. And so we have a variety of ways of expressing in the kind of tactile sculptural form, but also photographic or the painterly forms, and we have resistances to that. And what I'm hearing you saying is that this new digital frontier has opened up a similar kind of moment for us. What should we allow in terms of digital representation, avatars, the ability for my avatar, as you said earlier, to not represent me in either my appearance or my sexuality or my gender or my race, all of those things. And so we suddenly have to put our flags in the ground somewhere. And what I'm hearing you saying is different Christian communities are planting their flags in different places. Now, I just pulled in a whole bunch of stuff there, but as I'm looking at it from this longer historical view— do you feel like that is a reasonable parallel or am I missing something and you'd want to push us in a different direction? I think that's a reasonable parallel. I would add to that. What happened to the church when the printing press was created? So there's also how we think about imagery and represent God, but there's also a question of authority and accessibility to how we create theology. And it's as though both of those things that happened historically are happening together in new ways through digital technology. And in that regard, so for example, in the virtual reality chapter, I talk about how we could think about incarnational theology in a new sense, both as I am an incarnated being and what I do online still affects me in my embodied sense. So just because I do it online doesn't mean it's out there somewhere else and it doesn't affect me. It affects my moral development. Now, we also have a theology incarnationally that says where two or three are gathered, Jesus is there and the body of Christ is present. So in that interface of digital others and physical me, those are two or three are gathered. I might not I, I see avatars. I might not know the humans behind them or there might not be humans behind them. It might just be an algorithmic avatar. But my perception of community of two or three gathered is, in my view, theologically calling for the body of Christ and that presence. And so, again, that is going to morally form us 
I think it's problematic in those moments where we say, that's, that's just, it's just a machine. And therefore it's not affecting me. Every machine we use, every tool we use, the fact that I can pick up a knife and cut a piece of fruit as opposed to having to pull it apart with my hands <laughs> changes how I perceive myself in the world. <laughs> Why would we not think the fact that we stare into our phone to build relationships, to communicate with loved ones, to stalk to complete strangers? Why would we not think that's not changing us? It is changing us. I would add one more thing. I think where you said churches were really sticking their flags in the ground. They're, they think this, they think that. I'm concerned that churches aren't sticking any flags in the ground and they're just not talking about this. <laughs> so I'd rather have a raucous debate than what I think I mostly experience, which is faith communities not talking about this at all. Seminaries not teaching about it. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Kate Ott. She's the Jerry L. and Mary Joy Stead Professor of Christian Social Ethics and Director of the Stead Center on Ethics and Values at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. She's also the author of Christian Ethics for a Digital Society. Today we're talking about her recent book, Sex, Tech, and Faith, Ethics for a Digital Age. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these kinds of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today we're speaking with Kate Ott. She's the Jerry L. and Mary Joyce Stead Professor of Christian Social Ethics and Director of the Stead Center on Ethics and Values at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. We're talking about her recent book, Sex, Tech, and Faith, Ethics for a Digital Age. In our last segment, you were raising up this saying from the Gospels, where two or three are gathered, I am there with you, this promise that Christ made to the disciples. And what was there in my head was sitting in the kitchen at my wife's parents' house, where I'm there, my wife is there, and there's an Alexa sitting on the counter. And I thought to myself, Am I understanding Professor Ott correctly that there's a possibility that could be the third in the two or three being gathered, even though I know that there is no there behind the Alexa other than an algorithm, because I can interact with this machine in some way, and I can have a kind of moral experience with this machine in some way, does that count? And so that's really just what I want to lay on the table here in front of you. Are we really talking about the possibility of inanimate objects being part of the blessed community in this digital new frontier. We're getting there. I would also say that it's not just an inanimate object and an algorithm. It's an entire company and lots of people who are not specifically parsing what you talked about at breakfast, but are using that information for their purposes. So that device is a link to a much larger community that has people behind it. So that's one point, and that's a whole issue of privacy and surveillance that we should pay attention to. If we were to just talk about the device and the AI that's running it, so if we are only talking about those smart speakers and the the AI that runs them, oftentimes we as humans 
anthropomorphize those. And the developers of that AI are counting on that. That is why most of the smart speakers have a gendered feminine voice. Because they have done their research and they know that most of us are going to respond to a helper with an assumption that it's a gendered feminine voice. They have also programmed it to respond to politeness. So perhaps you've tried this or you've noticed it in your own reactions. If you are excessively rude or loud or berating, the smart speaker will usually either not reply to you, sort of act like it's not working, or give you a response where it's asking for more clarification. They often use a please and a thank you in their responses. So they are trying to also encourage in our interaction, in our relational communication, a value of politeness. And they are reinforcing that as we interact with that smart speaker. So there's a sense in which I'm not willing to say that smart speaker is a third human. But if I were to ask you if your dog was present, would you say your dog has some sort of connection with creation and with God? And yeah, I think that's part of creation and how we interact. And I would hope Jesus would be present as we think about the body of Christ incarnationally in those relationships. So we are being formed by that relationship regardless of whether we say it's just a machine or whether we say, no, the body of Christ is present here because two or three are gathered. My use of it in the text is less about a smart speaker and more about an embodied avatar where we perceive that as a human and that has enough and enough intelligence or at least in the gameplay has enough movement in a social relationship. So there's so much here that I want to linger on, but the thing first that really hit me when you're talking about the smart speaker responding better to politeness and in fact modeling for us in the face of our rudeness, politeness by responding with a please and a thank you, what went through my mind like a lightning bolt was this is catechesis. This is trying to train us for a certain way of behaving in social space. It's trying to make us able to recognize a certain other as a person. In the same way that I have been catechized as a Roman Catholic to have someone hold a cracker in front of me and say, this is the body of Christ, I have been trained to respond, yes, it is. In in a similar fashion, it's almost as if we're being trained to look at this object on our countertop, this smart speaker or this avatar in a game, and to say, that is too a person. Now, am I stretching too far with this thought of bringing this into the realm of a discussion of catechesis, or do you feel like that may be connecting with what you're trying to say? Our interaction with digital technology is moral, morally forming us. And that is the basis of what I'm trying to argue in this text related to our sexuality and also in Christian ethics for a digital age more broadly in our interactions socially. All the interactions we are having is moral formation. To me, has this sense of an institutional standard of what we hope for. That to me is missing when we think about digital technologies. Because if we think about the designers and the companies, I guess we could call it catechist, right? They have their values in mind. They want consumption. They want us to give away free data. 
we really need to start asking some hard questions about what kinds of legislation we might put into practice and as users, what ways we might push back on the kinds of development and design that's happening. So for example, if we think about sex robots, which don't exist yet in any good form that our imagination from sci-fi or Netflix or whatever else is trying to get us to imagine, those don't exist yet. But there are a lot of different kinds of either sex dolls or robotic forms that people interact with that can help us understand the ways in which humans are formed in an interaction with that type of device. So there was a study done by Real Doll that it's a sex doll body and they have an AI head that's lips move and talk to you. And they asked a number of young men to young heterosexual men to interact with this doll over a period of time. These young men reported prior to this that they had difficulty communicating with women, that they they had what we might characterize as, you know, an average young heterosexual male lack of confidence in these kinds of conversations. They interacted with this sex robot that's basically just the heads, the robot part with AI that would ask them questions about their day, remember facts about them, their favorites, basically interact with them. Their confidence in speaking with gendered females outside of that realm rose. They started to feel as though they could have these conversations. So it morally formed them to have a better sense of self and it helped them with communication across gender lines. I don't think that's a bad thing. Now, do these have to be overly sexualized Barbie dolls? No, because that's not the broadness of God's creation. And it probably reinforces all kinds of racist and sexist stereotypes. But does the actual interaction itself, when we can take a deep breath and say, I could practice at this, I could practice at this with a robot or with an avatar in VR, might that help us? across community lines, there's potential for that. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Kate Ott. She is the Jerry L. and Mary Joy Stead Professor of Christian Social Ethics and Director of the Stead Center on Ethics and Values at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. We're talking about her recent book, Sex, Tech, and Faith, Ethics for a Digital Age. So much here and in your book that just is blowing my mind right now. So you are inviting readers and inviting our listeners to look at their interactions with each other in the world, with their institutions, and with their objects, however we want to think about the personhood of those objects. And you are inviting them to do what you say is so sorely lacking right now in our churches, and that is to have a robust conversation about what we truly value and what we truly think will make our lives more healthy and have more flourishing. To me, this is a win-win, and this book is designed both for adult readers, but there's also a very substantive portion at the very end for, for helping to lead youth groups and young adult readers through this book as well. So I kind of want to ask about that, like your hoped-for audiences for this. Talk to me about how you would like adults to use this book and how you would like youth to use this book and youth leaders to use this book. 
I hope that folks who are within Christian communities and even folks who have left Christian communities but are still affected by the sexual theologies of those Christian communities, I I think there's a huge percentage of folks who have left Christian contexts but are still, I'll use the word haunted, by the kinds of sexual theology messages they were taught. This book opens a space for you to question that and to have an opportunity to think anew about how Christian ideas and theology could be helpful as we think about a flourishing sexuality across gender and orientations. So that's my first hoped for audience. My next audience is religious leaders, because I'm not sure, as we started this segment, you said this wasn't the book I thought it was going to be. I think most people who see sex, tech, and faith on a bookshelf are going to say, that is going to be a rule book that tells me everything I do in life is wrong. And that is not what this book is about, but I, I don't know how to title it differently to get people to know that other than maybe this is like the anti-sex book, sex book for Christians. And that wouldn't be good either because it's not anti-sex. But anyway, so I think it's really the role of religious leaders. So folks in seminaries, folks leading congregations, I really hope they pick this up and it gives them the courage to say, I'm going to recommend this to someone in pastoral care and counseling who's struggling with these issues. I'm going to recommend this to, you know, I'm just going to talk about it in a sermon on Sunday and I'm going to take the risk. It's going to be okay. People are already thinking about this, already doing, engaging in these things. This is going to give them a helpful sounding board to think about this. And then lastly, which I actually think is not the biggest leap. I think a lot of youth ministers have been wanting this text because they know young people are struggling with this and they are interacting with a digital generation that is saturated, but maybe not really savvy about these issues. And so my hope is that religious youth ministers, that they'll pick this up, they'll read the text for themselves. Probably you gotta be maybe junior, senior in high school, I'm not sure, to read the actual text, maybe in college. But you read the text and then you do the youth guide with your young folks and just open up the space for these kinds of conversations with them. Something that strikes me about this book is that on its surface and through and through, it is a book that looks at the way that the digital revolution has really transformed and upended our sexual values and our sexual identities. But at the same time, this is not a book about sex. This is a book about that great vista of digital communication and digital interaction. You could strip all of the questions of sexuality away, and those questions would still remain about how these new technologies are affecting our moral formation. So I really feel this book working on two levels. It's almost, uh, I want to say, like a tip of the iceberg book, or you're showing us the stuff that you know and your editors know will hook in a reader, but you really want them to get at these much, much deeper questions, which it seems fascinate you. Now, when I say that, am I onto something, or would you say, no, Dalt, you should go in a completely different direction? You are definitely onto something. My hope with this text is that the digital literacy aspects of it I mean, yes, sex robots is going to get people to pay attention. They're going to say, oh, I wonder what that chapter says. But how are we supposed to think about transhumanism and maybe artificial general intelligence that may take over the world at some point? 
many people are writing books and books and books on that and having really deep philosophical discussions. This is the tip of that conversation, as maybe many of us interact with that issue. So it's both a way for us to say, okay, this is experiential. I've done this. I, I know what that might feel like. I've asked those questions. Hopefully, it's then a pathway to say, I have exemplified for you how one might go about asking ethical questions about that issue. And you could then proceed to take the deep dive into that issue and really ask some critical questions about how this is shifting us culturally, societally, the earth itself, the core of the earth, in terms of the way in which we are connected through these technologies. I hope that is a piece of this text that you leave being a little bit more digitally literate, but with the capacity to continue to ask those questions. Also, just a quick plug, that is also part of the point of Christian ethics for a digital society. It really, it asks the big questions. What's going on with algorithms? How do we understand the way this infrastructure is literally shifting clouds and dirt? It's not just in the cloud. So that's another text that perhaps bridges into those more general questions for folks. So as this book has come into the world and as you've begun to have conversations about it with readers, is it landing where you wanted it to land? Is it generating the kind of conversations that you had hoped for? And have any of those conversations surprised you that maybe you hadn't anticipated? So I'm interested both in how you've seen this being received and also how you've been surprised by its reception. So it's only been in the world for a couple of weeks. <laughs> Not sure I could fully answer that particular question, but both in the the pre-release and then in conversations I had with folks when I was writing it, there is always an openness. As soon as I start with, hey, I'm writing about these issues. And once someone knows that I'm curious and I'm inviting them to be curious, there's no stopping the conversation because people want to talk about these issues. And I'll just note that my own father, who, very conservative Catholic, I think doesn't fully understand a liberal Christian seminary female professor does, um, but very supportive of me, read the whole text. And he's a lawyer. We started a whole conversation. How would we think about this? Like, does artificial intelligence do sex robots? Uh, are they going to be considered human? How are they protected legally? How do we think about that? There's even an aspect that people can grab onto if you're past the idea that any of these kinds of devices are going to play a role in how you think about your sexuality or your relationships, it's still asking us questions about the world around us. So that was one surprising direction that it went in, that I wasn't sure a post-read conversation would be something I had. And then for me, you know, again, I think I keep cycling back to this, but I've had a lot of folks doing youth ministry who have called me up, who have said, I'm going to read it. I'm going to use the youth guide, but I can you please come? Can the young folks meet you? Because they'll be open to asking questions to kind of kick it off to begin with. And I, I don't want us to default to the fact that it's just young people because they're being raised in a digital culture that need these conversations. So I hope that each of those is an opening to saying, oh, all the other people in our pews have questions about this too, or at least most of them do. And so it really needs to be a broader conversation. I do have to say, bottom line is people keep get, getting hooked on the sex robot question. So it's sort of my entry point to say, and they're not here yet. Let's talk about the rest of it. 
<laughs> but it does seem to be a fascinating book for folks. Well, Professor Kate Ott, I was so enriched by reading your book, Sex, Tech, and Faith, Ethics for a Digital Age. I am glad that you took the time to write this book with these particular emphases and hooks in it. I'm glad that you are getting some positive response, particularly among the youth group leaders that I know that were in your heart when you were writing this book. But I'm especially grateful that you took the time today to talk about it with me and my listeners. Thank you so much. I'm so appreciative of this time, and I loved the questions. So thank you so much for engaging this so deeply. We've been speaking today with Kate Ott. She is the Jerry L. and Mary Joy Stead Professor of Christian Social Ethics and Director of the Stead Center on Ethics and Values at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. She's the author of Christian Ethics for a Digital Society, and today we've been talking about her recent book, Sex, Tech, and Faith, Ethics for a Digital Age. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.